Thank you, Paul and Leslie, and good afternoon to all of you. A beautiful Sunday afternoon. Let's take our Bibles once again and turn to the book of Daniel. Daniel chapter 2, as we'll go back to that chapter for, I think this would be our third week. Daniel chapter 2, and we will be picking up the reading. Uh, well, let me get there. I'm in Matthew. That's not going to work out. <clears throat> Daniel chapter 2, and we will start in verse 24. Daniel chapter 2, verse 24. Therefore Daniel went in unto Arioch, whom the king had ordained to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went and said thus unto him, Destroy not the wise men of Babylon. Bring me in before the king, and I will show unto the king the interpretation. Then Arioch brought in Daniel before the king in haste. Said thus unto him, I have found a man of the captives of Judah that will make known unto the king the interpretation. The king answered and said to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, Art thou able to make known unto me the dream which I have seen and the interpretation thereof? Daniel answered in presence of the king and said, The secret which the king hath demanded cannot the wise men, the astrologers, the magicians, the soothsayers say, show unto the king. But there is a God in heaven that revealeth secrets, and maketh known to the king Nebuchadnezzar, what shall be in the latter days, thy dream, and the visions of thy head upon thy bed are these. As for thee, O king, thy thoughts came into thy mind upon thy bed, what should come to pass hereafter? And he that revealeth secrets made known to thee what shall come to pass. But as for me, this secret is not revealed to me for any wisdom that I have, more than any living, but for their sakes that shall make known the interpretation to the king." And that thou mightest know the thoughts of thy heart. Thou, O king, sawest, and behold, a great image. This great image, whose brightness was excellent, stood before thee, and the form thereof was terrible. This image's head was of fine gold, his breast and his arms were of silver, his belly and his thighs of brass, his legs of iron, his feet part of iron and part of clay. And thou sawest till that a stone was cut out without hands, which smote the image upon his feet that were of iron and clay, and break them to pieces. Then was the iron, the clay, the brass, the silver, and the gold broken to pieces together and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away. And no place was found for them. And the stone that smote the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This is the dream, and we will tell the interpretation thereof before the king. Thou, O king, art a king of kings, for the God of heaven hath given thee a kingdom, power, and strength and glory. And wheresoever the children of men dwell, the beasts of the field and the fowls of the heaven, hath he given unto thy, into thine hand, and hath made thee ruler over them all. Thou art this head of gold. And after thee shall arise another kingdom inferior to thee, and another third kingdom of brass, which shall bear rule over all the earth. And the fourth kingdom shall be strong as iron, for as much as iron breaketh in pieces, and subdueth all things, and as iron that breaketh all of these, shall it break in pieces and bruise. And whereas thou sawest the feet and toes, part of potter's clay, part of iron, the kingdom shall be divided. But there shall be in it of the strength of the iron, for as much as thou sawest the iron mixed with miry clay. And as the toes of the feet were of part of iron and part of clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly broken. And whereas thou sawest iron mixed with miry clay, they shall mingle themselves with the seed of men, 
but they shall not cleave one to another, even as iron is not mixed with clay. And in the days of these kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom, which shall never be destroyed, and the kingdom shall not be left to other people. But it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. For as much as thou sawest that the stone that was cut out of the mountain without hands, and it break in pieces the iron, the brass, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God hath made known to the king what shall come to pass hereafter. And the dream is certain, and the interpretation thereof sure. Then the king Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face and worshipped Daniel, and commanded that they should offer an oblation and sweet odors unto him. The king answered unto Daniel and said, Of a truth it is that your God is a God of gods and a Lord of kings and a revealer of secrets, seeing thou couldst reveal this secret. Then the king made Daniel a great man and gave him many gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and the chief of governors over all the wise men of Babylon. Then Daniel requested of the king, and he set Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon. But Daniel sat in the gate of the king. God add a special blessing to the reading of his word and let us pause for prayer before our study this afternoon. Father God, it is with a great deal of pleasure we come before you, thanking you for the truth that you have, first of all, brought to us, preserved, and even in these years, this year particularly, where it seems that truth has certainly not been revealed to many, certainly not sought after by, few, by fewer, Father, the, the availability of truth by you is nothing less than a tremendous gift. We would pray that the Holy Spirit would exclusively be our teacher this afternoon and that he would speak to our hearts using the word of God, the truth, to make us more of what you want us to be. As it's found in Romans chapter 8 that literally, Father, you want us to be conformed to the image of your Son. That has been your focus from even before the foundation of the world. And now, Father, we rest in the promises that you give to us, thanking you for the opportunity to gather around your word and in this place, for these moments to be yours as you instruct us, guide us, encourage us for the days before us. Well, thank you now for what you'll accomplish in Christ's name. Amen. Well, Daniel chapter 2, which was a a time frame that was a few years back. In fact, I think it's really interesting. This is a prophecy was the first one, obviously, in the book of Daniel, but one given to Nebuchadnezzar, uh, a Gentile king, which, as we just read, literally was the first kingdom recognized from this time going forward. And uh, once again, what was our approximate time frame? We know that the children of Israel, uh, those, I'm sorry, those four coming from the children of Israel, Daniel and his three friends, that they had been kidnapped, if you will. They were, had take, been taken hostage because, uh, let's, let's just kind of review for a second, that uh, Nebuchadnezzar came into that land of Israel. He was probably eight or 900 miles from home. His father had, uh, had sent him out on a mission. And he had captured things, but then inadvertently his father passed away. And so he needed to go back home and just kind of take care of business. So he wanted to wrap some things up and yet not lose anything that he had gained. So literally the best thing he could think of was to leave the king in power, this guy that was kind of a clown anyway, 
the last one of the kings of Judah. Israel had only been taken captive by the Assyrians a hundred years previous. So now we have Judah, the southern kingdom, and they were literally in a great deal of disarray as well. But Babylon, or Nebuchadnezzar, what he did is he took hostages from the royal family, of which, uh, not David, uh, Daniel and these other three friends, which stuck out because chapter 1 tells us that they purposed in their heart. They made, they made a decision, no matter where they're at, for no possible imaginable reason would they defy their God. And that's pretty cool. That doesn't happen that much either today. But there's probably thought to be uh, about 75 of these young men that were taken from Israel, uh, particularly Judah, and taken to Babylon. And then they went under a great deal of schooling. Uh, three years, it was uh, uh, basically college, shall we say. Uh, Daniel and his friends were 14 to 15 years of age. That's the time that you pretty much know everything there's to know, and then later you find out you don't know very much at all. <laughs> but amazingly, is three years later, they, chapter 2 took place. So uh, they were taken in about 605 B.C. And so if we just do the math from chapter 1, they completed their school because they arrived or appeared before Nebuchadnezzar, and guess what? He said, these guys are like 10 times better than my astrologers and all my other guys, right? So we're supposing then that it was probably about 602 BC that chapter 2 would have been given. And King Nebuchadnezzar was this guy that God revealed a dream that, believe this or not, well, sure you do. It hasn't even been fulfilled yet. It's still ongoing. So you just do the math and you're thinking, whoa, that's 2,600 years plus, and Nebuchadnezzar was the king, and we haven't reached kingdom five yet. <laughs> Is that a panorama of prophecy? That's why you really can't step into the book of Revelation until you get started in Daniel. Daniel, as if you're building a house, it would be the foundation and the framework of which Revelation starts to fit things on. And it all starts to make sense if you dive into Revelation with understanding Daniel uh, it's a long day. <laughs> it gets real weird. But here we have these four kingdoms, and we talked about those last week. Um, the first one would be King Nebuchadnezzar. And if you think about it, this statue or this personage that he saw in his mind would have been, I'm sure, much more brilliant or much more outstanding than I can give to you today. So you'll have to let your imagination go as well. But it was interesting. It was top-heavy. We talked about it last week, the specific gravity of gold, untarnishable, uh, wonderful in the sense of appearance, its purity, uh, very malleable too. I would say this that we talked to, I, in some of my study last week. You could take one troy ounce of of gold, and you literally can make fifty miles of wire. Think of that, the, what you can do with it. But again, speaking of the sense of specific gravity or weights, um, gold obviously the heaviest, then silver, brass. Iron and then finishes up with clay that was intermingled, which, you know, have you ever tried to mix iron and clay together? You can add heat. You can do anything you want to do. I'm not even sure any kind of putty would hold that together, right? And I found that I was thinking of this just earlier today. Uh, how did man start? What did God create Adam out of? Yeah, basically clay, dirt. And that's, it's amazing. We go through this grandiose, the time of the Gentiles is what we could call that dream. This has been the ongoing sense of where literally the Israelites now in 605 BC literally had been set aside. Why? 
because they had not trusted the God that had appeared to them, that had literally taken them, guided them out of the land of Egypt. All of those things. And, and it was, think of Daniel for a moment. Here's this teenager that's wondering, is God done with us? Has he, has he given up on us? Which he certainly would deserve to. I would have to say the same thing of America today. Is God done with us? He certainly could deserve to be done with us, but it's amazing how gr- full of grace and mercy God is, particularly with individuals. He's always interested in individuals. As, as Jesus Christ walked the earth, it was like he wanted to go directly to the hearts of those individuals. And yes, Israel was set aside even by Jesus. We'll, we'll talk about that in a moment in, in uh, uh, thinking of Matthew chapter 23, verse 37. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. Oh, as a mother hen would have gathered her chicks. I would, but you would not. And then he says, the next time that you really will see me, he's pointing to a prophecy that was said in Zechariah, which we'll look at later on today, chapter 12, until you see me for who I am. And you know what? That's really built into this prophecy as well. We haven't even gotten there yet. Just think of the ext- at, at the expanse of our God who sees for us to see a thousand years, as it says in Second Peter chapter three and verses nine and ten, eight, eight, nine. I'm sorry, is a thousand years is a day. That's the kind of God I want. I don't want a God I can put in my box and get him out when I need him. And that's what most people want: is a God they can control. I don't. I want a God that can control everything. There's nothing He's out of control of. And thank goodness today, as messed up as our world is, from all sorts of different things, God is and will continue to be on his throne forever. And this vision, this dream that Nebuchadnezzar's had, is revealing now for this course of time, which is 2,600 plus years, we know we're at least, even if something happened this very day called the snatching away or the rapture, we would be seven years away from the final culmination of the fifth kingdom, which is that literally the kingdom of God, a physical, literal, real kingdom. Now, it hasn't happened yet because you'll notice, and again, uh, the first, let's, let's finish these four kingdoms, and then we'll just dive right in because last week we spent a lot of time describing those. Um, today, what I want to talk about specifically and more intimately is the fact of this stone just shows up. We read it in a couple of verses 34, 35, and verses 44 and 45. It speaks of this stone that just starts appearing and runs and begins to pick up speed and literally wipes out this image, which must have taken Nebuchadnezzar, totally must have blown his mind. To watch this beautiful image, which was top-heavy, which again, it seems like it was resorting back to the very thing of which we were made of, and that was dirt. Isn't that what happens? When we leave God out, with God, we have nothing. Literally, that's what's going on in our world again today. Is this the end? I don't know that it is or isn't, but the, certainly we can see shadows of, for particularly revelation. We can see the mark of the beast. We can see things that literally are as clear as you can make it. When I was just a youngster, which was a few years back, and I would re- read Revelation, I'd see the mark of the beast, the 666, and you know, there was different things, it was a tattoo. We're way, there's, there's multiple ways of that being able to be put in the sense of scanning, of permanent identification, and it would sell, it will sell, it is selling. And to think of how current we are to Revelation making never more sense than it is today tells us that these shadows, which are lengthening, tells us we're very close to the end. But Daniel chapter 2 is the first prophecy to really explode on the scene. Again, there's a lot that Daniel did not see. 
he did not see, nor did any New Old Testament prophet, prophet see the time frame which we call the church age or the age of grace, which was allowed for the Gentiles really to be part of the church. That was something that was a parenthesis that they just saw. If you just, for instance, as we looked from the mountains from here, and you can see the peak of Mount Baldy. That's not the only peak till you get there. If you actually traverse that, there's lots of valleys. There would be lots of what I call mini peaks that you can, from our perspective, we can see those, but you can't see the in-between stuff. But very much like Daniel. In, 20, in, in 600 B.C., for him to be able to see the, the grand panoramic view, and this is the panoramic view of prophecy. It really entails everything that we need to know or will see from that day until literally stepping into eternity where there's no more time. That is how big this dream really is. That's amazing, isn't it? So the first kingdom is the Babylonian kingdom of which Nebuchadnezzar is solely and completely, 100%, without question, if you doubt it, you will die in charge. He was that guy. And secondarily, then, as he passed off the scene, about 80 to 90 years is the length of that kingdom, then we had the, the Medes and Persians, which again would have been the arms and the chest, two kingdoms, a little bit more divided in the sense of the, the plurality of leadership would have been divided. Uh, and you can see just the sense of strength, or I'm going to say the, the uh, that's not the right word I'm looking for, um, the persona of this one single entity, Nebuchadnezzar, it's, it begins to be split. And you can see the value change as you go lower, but the strength of the kingdoms actually increase because the third one was Greece. Uh, Greece, Alexander the Great, wow, 33 years of age and he had conquered the world. And I'm talking the world. Everything that he would have possibly known, in fact, he really died a drunken, discouraged young man because there was no more land to conquer. Imagine that. Now, one thing I have undermined in my Bible, and that's the only thing I have in this chapter. I'm not saying that's wise or unwise, but I think it's important for us to note this. In, in verse 37 of Daniel chapter 2, this has always been the case, and Nebuchadnezzar wasn't anybody cool. He was powerful, but I want to make sure that we understand this. Even today, as we see kingdoms come and kingdoms go, God is in charge. Look at verse 37. Thou, O king, Daniel speaking to Nebuchadnezzar, art a king of kings, for the God of heaven, watch now, hath given thee a kingdom, power, and strength, and glory. It isn't anything that Nebuchadnezzar brought to the table, nor do we. We're saved by grace through faith, by grace alone, in faith alone, in Christ alone. And that's not even anything we brought. It's literally a gift of God, otherwise we would boast about that. And I think of all of these kingdoms, Nebuchadnezzar, the Medes and Persians, the Grecians, through Alexander the Great, that was all a gift. It was all an allowance for God's work to be accomplished. And then lastly of the kingdoms, which hasn't been conquered, that's the Roman Empire. Um, and it's went on for a long period of time. In fact, when Jesus walked the earth, who was in charge? The Romans. And how much did the nation of Israel enjoy that? Oh, they were always ticked off, weren't they? The, the, the priests and the scribes, if, I would say this, they would have gotten on board with Jesus if Jesus would have said, okay, guys, this is the plan. We're going to take out the Romans. They would have bought into that. In fact, that's what Judas Iscariot wanted. He was part of the team as long as the team was thought to be where he wanted it to go. And then when it wasn't, he sold out Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. Think of that, the Savior of the world, the one that literally has placed himself on a cross 
and his blood shed for us to cleanse us from sins was sold for 30 pieces of silver. Isn't that something? Talk about getting our values off. (laughs) He missed it. But he really missed everything when he didn't see his Savior. It goes on today. But Roman Empire, um, very, very strong. What do you know about it? Let's talk about it for a a little bit as we just start to transition into this stone that comes rolling down off of this mountain. What can we say about the Roman Empire? What are some things? Very cruel, wasn't it? Yeah, it really was. And it was very strong in the sense of its picture. Uh, the, the analysis given is iron. Now, iron in the sense of uh, compared to gold or silver, it's very, very hard, very durable, very strong. I mean, it'll take a beating and keep on ticking. What happened to the Roman Empire then? If it's so strong, what happened to it? It's still kind of going. It's, it's still, it is. It's still going. Exactly right. And literally, its strength was, it's what's happened to America, literally. We've rotted from within. Morally, we have destroyed ourselves. Again, I'm going to say this. It's a, it's a common theme. If, if I'm teaching, it's just something that just seems blaring to me, particularly from Romans chapter 1, is we have resisted truth. And when we resist truth, not only that generation, but cons- uh, subsequent generations then don't even know truth and can't even discern truth. And now we have a land, a world full of people that literally don't know the difference between truth and untruth. Truth. When we resist truth, we will fall prey to evil. And that's what's happened literally to America as well. And to think that's how Roman fell from within. It was a moral decay from the inside. But it never really was conquered by anyone else. Now, there's still remnants of it. You can see it's, it's weaker and weaker. You see this, the, the clay and the iron kind of getting... It's like this, there's always this little bit of struggle, right? And nothing ever get accomplished. Well... I'm not here to say exactly the European common market or the European Union, all of those things that would be still focused somewhere in that region in Europe. Um, If you were going to, but now it's interesting, he did not say 10 nations. We talked about this briefly last week. Okay. You see the 10 toes. Um, We think of 10, no, it's not 10 kingdoms or 10 nations. It's 10 kings. And again, I've forgotten, there's 27 or 28 nations that are involved today in the European uh, common, the union, European Union, there we go. Uh, but I'm not bothered by that because it has to be the end. Are we at the end? No, we're not at the end. The time of the Gentiles has not been chosen by God to end. What ends it? When God decides. That's when it ends. No one knows exactly. Even now we do know this. Again, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 17, maybe write that down in your notes, something to review. In fact, let's just read it. This will be something that's the next thing on the prophetic calendar is 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Let's go there for a moment. And let's take a peek. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And one of the reasons that Paul wrote to the Thessalonians is they really thought they'd missed it. They thought they'd missed the Lord. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, beginning now at verse 13. But I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, those that have died, that you sorrow not, even as others which have no hope. No hope. I, I, that's another thing that just we want to center on today. There's a lot of people living, not only in America, not only in Madison County or Montana, or even the town of Sheridan, Twin Bridges, Whitehall. There's a lot of people that don't really have hope. Their hope is focused in things that are material. 
there are based in relationships, physical, personalities. We're talking about a hope that is much enlarged and beyond, which is the only place to have hope. If you don't have any hope in God, that is a shallow hope of which, again, I read something yesterday uh, just as a headline. There in one, it was a country, and I, I didn't, you know, sometimes you don't click on it. You can't follow it all. I like to. I'm, I'm, I'm a researcher. But it said just in the headline that more people have died from suicide because of COVID-19 than from COVID-19 itself. That's what it's done is it's caused a people to literally become so fearful and so hopeless that they've given up. You show me someone that has no hope, I will show you someone that's very close to ending their life or giving up. Hope. Let's keep going. It's not really the branch I was going to go on. But verse 14, for if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, that's key. If you believe that, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we, which are alive and remain, shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. That would be a word that's, that, you know, I would call it the rapture. Now, rapture is not a word that you find in the scripture. That's one of the things that, they, but it's a catching away. It's a snatching away. Now, the difference between the rapture and the second coming is the second coming literally is the fifth kingdom that is talked about in Daniel chapter 2. He hits the earth and he sets up a kingdom. The rapture, the catching away of those that are the church, those that have trusted Christ as Savior, he meets them in the air. In other words, they come to meet him in the air. Two different, very different events. Very different events. But right around that time frame when the catching away, oh, by the way, I'm ready. I'm ready. I want to go. If you ever want to go, I really want to go. I remember just as a little kid, you know, you know they'd be maybe talking about a trip, my mom and dad. and Can we go? Are we ready to go? Are we ready to go? And then you get in the car. Are we there? Are we there? Right. And those with kids know that. I mean, it's amazing. And then you have to get so creative as a parent. How do we stretch all of that time and just say, we're okay. We're getting there. And you know what? We're getting there right now, but I'm ready to go. I'm ready to get out of here and blow this pop stand. But from that point, then would start a brand new era. A brand new dispensation would be a biblical word because we're, we're closing in on the end. And I'm saying the shadows are long. The shadows are linked. We're beginning to see things that never became so clear of the tribulation period, which is the time when God will be working exclusively. And I'm saying exclusively in the sense of his major focus or major thrust is back with the Jews. He has set them aside. There's in uh, Romans chapter 11, Paul speaks to that. What, does God, is he not, not going to fulfill his promises with his children? No, yes, he will. Yes, he will. But for right now, God be praised that the Jews weren't clever enough, smart enough, open enough to accept Jesus for who he was. Because it's allowed a huge opportunity over 2,000 years for us as Gentiles to literally reach out in God, reaching down in mercy and grace and giving us life. What a fantastic thing. What if that hadn't happened? God forbid. God is great. God is merciful. So thankful to be here. But that seven years then begins a brand new time frame, an era, which God will be working with the Jews. What does God want from the Jews? For them literally to, to, to rec recognize Jesus Christ as the Messiah. 
the anointed one, the Christos, the one that he had spoken of way back with his predictions and prophecies that were unfolded for all to see. In fact, I still marvel at this as we approach a season which would be representative of Jesus coming to earth. And remember those, those wise men. I'm not sure. Let's take a, just for a step, just for a moment. You know, those wise men came from where? From the far, which would have been probably Babylon. How much influence did Daniel have on the peoples living in that area for all of those years that literally had those wise men seeking after this little boy, this baby boy, the Messiah that was spoken of in the scriptures? Very possible. Daniel was a key component of all of that. As they came into town, who was, who was in charge? Herod. He was a cool guy, wasn't he? Love kids. He hated everyone other than himself, didn't he? In fact, that's a sordid story to watch that man unfold and how many of his immediate family that he killed. Maliciously. He was a horrible, horrible person. But these guys come in and there's this uproar and they say, where is the king of the Jews? Now that's going to get his attention. Because he's acting as a king of a Jew. He was actually an Idumean. He was not a full-fledged Jew. He had no authority to be part of that, but he had took it under, again, the Roman power, power grab. But that never happens today, though, right? There's no power and money going on. <laughs> exactly. It's amazing how universal that's been and is. And then they say the Bible isn't relevant. It fits perfectly. At any rate... Then he goes and gets who? He gets the scribes. He gets the smart guys, right? Brings me. He said, hey, where's, what, what, where, what's going on here? You know, he's nervous. He's upset. And they said, oh, yeah, that would be in Bethlehem. Because they pulled the scriptures out. Micah chapter 5, verse 2. He's going to be born in Bethlehem. Guess who went? Just the wise men. Can you think of that? It made no, it, no difference in their lives whatsoever. Does that not sound like us today in America? Oh, it's amazing, isn't it? And, of course, the wise men, they go, they offer their gifts, they offer their adoration, and they go home another way. (laughs) Good move. (laughs) And you know the rest of the story. Where was I going with that story? Why did I get down that branch? I have to think for a moment. Where was I going? Let's go back to, what were we talking about? Yes. Well, let me, let's just, let, let's go with that. Let's start, just start, make that as our starting point. Um, that being the season of which, you know, we, uh, we uh, celebrate and commemorate the birth of Christ. And to think of all of those details even surrounding that fact, how it all fit together at the perfect time Jesus appears. And the Roman Empire at that time was very powerful. Today, it's not been destroyed. It's literally just kind of fell apart. But Daniel said and Nebuchadnezzar dreamed it, that there would be a reviving of that. There would be ten kings. Let's look at a couple other examples of that. We're going to go quickly. Uh, take, let's go to Daniel chapter 7, because this is a dream that Daniel has that uses different analogies, but it still speaks of these kingdoms. Now, what we're going to do is we're going to, we're going to go to the very end, the little horn, if you will. Daniel chapter, whoops, I'm, in Daniel, I'm going to go to Daniel chapter 7. Let's do that for a moment. Daniel chapter 7. I'll get there eventually. We're going to start in verse 24. Now, these 
we're going to use a different word. Instead of ten toes, we're going to use ten horns. Okay? Watch again. And the ten horns out of this kingdom, this is the one we would reveal. And as we get into chapter 7, this will make more sense. But this kingdom, again, is the Roman Empire. Are ten kings that shall arise. And another shall rise after them, and he shall be diverse from the first, and he shall subdue three kings. He shall speak great words against the Most High, and shall wear out the saints of the Most High, and think to change times and laws, and they shall be given into his hand until a time and times, and the dividing of times. But the judgment shall sit, and they shall take away his dominion to consume and to destroy it unto the end. And the kingdom and dominion and the greatness of the kingdom under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High, whose kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and all dominion shall serve and obey him. Hitherto is the end of the matter. As for me, Daniel, my cogitations much troubled me, and my countenance changed in me, but I kept the matter in my heart. Now, again, that's another dream that Daniel actually dreamed that, whoa, kept him awake. Those ten horns are again, representative of the Roman Empire, which will be somewhat revived. Now, out of that, um, there's a little more detail in chapter 7 than there was in chapter 2. Now we start to see even the room and the promulgation of this combining and coming to a higher ascension of where there's going to be one, one person breaking out of this revived federation or empire. He would be called the Antichrist, and he's given a lot of detail in Revelation and even in Thessalonians. But as you unpack that, you still see the same thing. Out of this revived Roman Empire is where the last kingdom will come. And that comes how? From this stone that was made without hands. Let's go back to Daniel and read it again. And let's start to really focus in on this. Daniel chapter 2. Let's, we'll read in verse 34 and 35 as the dream had it. And then we're going to go to verses 44 and 45. 34 and 35 goes this way. Daniel chapter 2. Thou sawest till that a stone that was cut out without hands, which smote the image upon his feet that were of iron and clay, and broke them to pieces. Then was the iron, the clay, the brass, the silver, and the gold, broke into pieces together and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors, and the wind carried them away that no place was found for them. And the stone that smote the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. Now now that's the dream. Think of that if you're Nebuchadnezzar. You watch this grand image, this statue, if you will, in his mind that's unreal and marvelous. And I mean, mind-catching. And here comes this stone. You can almost, it's almost like you watch this from a caption you see out of the corner of your eye. Here's a stone that begins rolling off the mountain. And it's picking up steam, and it wipes out the feet and the toes, and the whole thing literally, are you ready? It's just like flour, and here comes the wind, and it's gone. That must have been disturbing. (laughs) That part must have been, right? And then it says that the stone became a mountain and filled the whole earth. Now, let's watch verse 44 and 45. As Daniel describes for us, That same deal. And in the days of these kings, verse 44, in the days of these kings. Now, what what days are these? When the ten toes are there, which I'm convinced we're very close, but we haven't seen that yet. That hasn't happened. Okay, that hasn't happened. Shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom? God's going to set up the kingdom. It's a kingdom of God, the fifth one, which shall never be destroyed. No end to it. And the kingdom shall not be left to other people, but it shall break in pieces and consume all of these kingdoms, and it shall stand 
forever. For as much as thou sawest that the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the brass, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God that hath made known to the king what shall come to pass hereafter, and the dream is certain, and the interpretation thereof. Whoa. So now we have a little pic- we have a clearer picture of the fifth. That's, that's one of the kingdoms that is literally named. Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom was named. The other three were not. The fifth one was named. The kingdom of God. The kingdom of God. That's why in the next few verses, literally, I'm sure Daniel was not very happy about it, but Nebuchadnezzar comes out of his throne seat. He's about 27 right now. He's feeling his oats. This is, a, this is an emperor that thinks he's the deal. And he literally comes out of his seat. He's bugged so deeply by this, that this vision. He drops at the feet of Daniel, and literally the word is worshipped him. Did Daniel nail this vision? You better believe it. That king knew. And that's the other thing that makes it so much more senseful, uh, makes more sense in the such. Nebuchadnezzar, I think God took the vision back. He had it. It upset him. It was amazingly upsetting to him. And then he couldn't even remember the dream. Have you ever done that? You wake up and something has been chasing you. <laughs> and you can't remember what. You can't remember why, but you're sweating. Right? And it bugs you. That would have been Nebuchadnezzar probably like 50 times. And then... When Daniel relayed the dream to him, oh, yeah, that's that's it. I remember that. Remember, right? Then when Daniel gave him the interpretation, he couldn't help but take the interpretation because Daniel had just shown him the dream that no one else knew. It's fabulous how that worked together. The stone that made without hands, it's described twice for us there. There's some, some significance in that. Made without hands. Now, men can make bricks. Remember the Israelites? They were pretty good brick makers in Egypt, weren't they? I don't know if you gave me... What did they got? Straw and what else? Mud, I guess, right? I wouldn't be a very good brick maker with straw and mud. I don't know what I'd do. But it's been done, and, and you can do it, okay? But man can't make rock. You cannot make a stone. Have you ever tried? No. In fact, I've got a couple pieces of ground over here that I rent... I'm convinced that God made extra rocks and he left them there in case he needed them later, which he didn't need them later. They're still there. Rocks or rocks or stones are God's thing. He makes those. No one else makes those. Now, this is even, there's some, think, some think, things that tend to even make more sense to me. This is a stone made without hands. There's no human intervention. This fifth king, kingdom coming on site. Now, this is, listen carefully now. This kingdom has not arrived. This kingdom is not the church. Because one of the things, did you see that it, it tore down or it, it smote this statue or this image? What? How? Over a course of time? No. Suddenly. It was with, a, I mean, immediacy. It was over. Now, the church came online, obviously, while the Roman Empire was in charge. Now, is there a spiritual component to the church? Well, of course. That's why Jesus came the first time. In fact, listen to this for a moment now. Let's go here. It just popped in my mind. Um, I got to think about this for a second. Let's go to Luke chapter 4 for a moment first. Luke chapter 4. This is a little bit of a parenthesis, but the sense of division of time of what, what Jesus came to do the first time and the second, very distinct and very different. Luke chapter 4, and we'll turn as you're turning to... Verse 14, I want to fill you in on what happened in verses 1 through 13. 
Uh, Luke chapter 4, as you're turning there, uh, the beginning of Luke talks about the initiation, if you will, or the setting up of Jesus's ministry. Now, he had worked with his father. He was in a carpenter shop. And as he grew up, you know, we don't know a lot about those years. But the way that God got him ready to go about his three years of ministry was it opened up with an initiation going to the wilderness and getting tempted by Satan himself. That's as big a game as anyone could give and bring. Now, he passes it with flying colors. In fact, the Holy Spirit was with him. He had fasted for 40 days. In verse 13, it ends and says this. Are you there now? Luke chapter 4, verse 13. When the devil had ended all of the temptation, he departed from him for a season. That's a lot like our lives too, isn't it? Satan or a demon will come and present a temptation to you. And through God, by the way, you should always have, if you're a Christian and you know Jesus Christ personally, he has made a promise to you which is given to us in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13, that with any temptation that is brought to you because it's common to man, he will with the temptation, speaking of God, a way to escape it. There's always an escape route if you've trusted Christ. Now, we don't always take it. Now, it's amazing in my own life, I can turn around and say, ah, there it was, right? But that's for next time even. He's so good about allowing us to come and ask for forgiveness, repent of our sin, and there's, but every time there is a way to escape for a season and they keep coming back because Satan is interested in messing up your testimony and your life and your families. That's what he loves to do. That's what he's really trying to do. At the end of the fifth kingdom is he's trying to wipe out all of Israel, all of Christians, so that God has no kingdom of which to reign over. That is literally what he's trying to do. It's not a secret. He started with Adam and Eve. He messed it up from the beginning. But before the foundation of the world, this tells us in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4, that God had chose us in him, him being Christ, before he made anything. So even Satan, thinking that he won, lost. And on the cross, as Jesus Christ would have said, it is finished, there must have been a split second where Satan said, I've won. But I'm going to tell you what, that didn't last very long. On that early Sunday morning, as those sun rays would have broke, and that stone was rolled away, not for Jesus to get out, but for us to see Jesus was out. That must have just haunted him because that's another reason that two particularly, this is a stone made without hands, is the virgin birth had nothing to do with man. God literally, the Holy Spirit, indwelt and within the womb of Mary, the Son of God, Emmanuel, God with us, took shape. Then he was born, and 33 years later, he was crucified at the hands of men that he'd created, which is crazy, isn't it? That's pretty wild. But then three days later, he rose from the dead. How much did man have to do with that? Nothing at all. Those two specific things certainly speak to the fact a stone made without hands. What a fabulous thing to know that man did not intervene in any way, shape, or form of this stone coming down, wiping out all of the sinfulness of mankind and setting up a kingdom for eternity. This kingdom will never go away. It will start very suddenly, which speaks of a physical, real kingdom. And I'm glad to say you can, tr you can bank on that because if my Jesus was born when God said how he said, virgin's birth, in the city of Bethlehem, if you want to do all of the prophecies that he did, 
it's a huge number. It's so amazing that you can't even comprehend it and that it all happened. Plus, the thing for me, the reason I'm standing before you today is only one reason. Jesus Christ rose from the dead. If he had not rose from the dead, I would not be here. Because if he couldn't conquer death, that's my biggest enemy that I see in front of me. If he couldn't handle that, he's not a big enough God for me. See, Hare Krishna, Muhammad, all of those other leaders, all of those prophets, guess where they're at? Still lying in state. My Jesus is not in the grave. His bones aren't there. He's, on, he's in heaven sitting at the right hand of God. And then being an advocate for me. Can you imagine? What would it cost to get a defense attorney for myself to get me through this wayward world? Jesus is doing it free gratis because he's given his grace, his blood, because he paid for all of it. That is amazing. But that's my Jesus. And that's the fifth kingdom, literally. He's the stone that was made without hands. Now, I think I dropped the ball here, didn't I? I got way off in a little branch again. How, right? Correct? Go ahead, Jeff. Tell me. It's, it's right. Okay. So let's go now. Now, what we've described is Jesus is just beginning his ministry. So watch the first thing he does. This is literally the first thing he does. We find it in verse 14. Here we go. Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit into Galilee. And there went out a fame of him through all of the region round about. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified of all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. This is hometown. And as his custom was, this is something he'd been doing, he went up, I'm sorry, he went into the synagogue of the Sabbath day and took up for to read. He had read before out of the scroll. Verse 17, there was delivered unto him the book of the prophet Isaiah. When he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written. In other words, he's, he's taking this scroll and he's finding what he's going to read to the people on this day. What's he going to read? What's he going to read? Is he going to read Isaiah chapter 9 where it speaks of him? No, watch what he reads. This is interesting. Uh, verse 18. Now, what we're reading is from Isaiah chapter 61. We'll go back there for a moment. We'll watch carefully. The spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor, he hath sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord, period. And he closed the book, and he gave it again to the minister, or the servant that was handling the scrolls, and sat down. And the eyes of all them that were in the synagogue were fastened on him, and watch verse 21. He began to say unto them, this day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. Whoa. Now, let's just, for a matter of fact, let's go back to Isaiah chapter 61 and let's see what it says. Isaiah 61. Now, remember, you keep your place in, in Luke chapter 4. I, I didn't tell you in time, did I? Uh, go find Luke chapter 4 and verse 18 because we're going to compare. We're going to go to uh, Isaiah chapter 61. And I want us to compare. You tell me when to stop, okay? You're going to watch what Jesus read. Isaiah 61, and I'm going to read now in chapter 61. I want you to stop me when I'm supposed to stop, okay? You all ready? Here we go. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord hath anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek. He hath sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to them that are bound to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the, oh, well, that's not fair. That's in chapter, that's in verse two and it's not the end of the verse. 
In fact, it's not a period, but it's a comma. In fact, let's keep reading now. We're here in Isaiah chapter 61. Let's read the rest of verse 2. It says, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord, comma, that's where he stopped, and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all that mourn. Literally, right there where Jesus stopped was where his first coming, that is where he came as a baby. He lived for 33 years. He walked the earth. He was crucified. He rose again, and that's where it ended. The second coming picks up in verse 2. <laughs> the vengeance of the Lord will be laid out. This fifth kingdom of which Daniel is speaking of, Nebuchadnezzar's dream, literally will take place in Isaiah chapter 61, verse 2. That fifth kingdom, which there will be no end, literally will be the end of the rest of the times of the Gentiles. Think of that. All of that time and frame. You talk about how big and gigantic that vision was. <whistles> Crazy. Absolutely wild. Now, let's take a look at... I'm trying to think where we should go next. Let's go to Zechariah. Now, it's again... When did I, let's, let's kind of get to contemporaries. I love to get context. So Daniel, we've talked about this now. He's in 602 BC probably. Where is in the sense of time frame, where is Isaiah? Was he before? Was he after? Where, where was Isaiah in all of this? Excuse me? He was, he was before a little bit. It was actually not too much. They were somewhat of a contemporary. And for him literally, for him literally to come up with the same situation of speaking of this Messiah, if you will, and to have a first and second coming. Not Again, they didn't know the church thing. They didn't get that. But look at how it all dovetails together. Now let's go to Zechariah. Now Zechariah was about 100 years later. Zechariah. And this is one speaking to the Egyptians, not to the Egyptians, the Israelites. If you, do you know where Matthew is? Just go backwards, find Malachi, and then Zechariah. Was that the easiest way to ever find Zechariah? Maybe not. Your index is easier, isn't it? Let's go to Zechariah chapter 14. And we're talking about the time frame and what will be taking place. Zechariah is speaking of the second coming of the Lord. The second coming where literally Jesus will land on the earth. Mount Zion. There's a, there's a, there's a hill outside of Jerusalem and it says, Lo, I lay in Zion a stone. Remember that? Okay. That's speaking exactly of what Daniel had saw. Zechariah chapter 14, let's start in verse 1. Behold, the day of the Lord cometh, and thy spoil shall be divided in the midst of thee. For I will gather all nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city shall be taken. And the houses rifled, and the women ravaged, ravished, I'm sorry, and half of the city shall go forth into captivity, and the residue of all the people shall not be cut off from the city. Then shall the Lord go forth and fight against those nations as when he fought in the day of battle. His feet shall stand in that day, and upon the Mount of Olives... Did you see it? Now, what's the difference? What are we seeing right now? He literally has hit the earth. This is the second coming. This is the beginning of the fifth kingdom, which is before Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall cleave in the midst thereof toward the east and toward the west, and there shall be a very great valley. And half of the mountain shall remove toward the north, and half of it toward the south. And you shall flee to the valley of the mountains, for the valley of the mountains shall reach unto Azel. Yea, you shall flee like as you fled from before the earthquake in the days of Uzziah the king of Judah. And the Lord my God shall come, and all the saints with thee. 
It shall come to pass in that day that the light shall not be clear nor dark. But it shall be one day which shall be known to the Lord, not day nor night, but it shall come to pass that at evening time it shall be light. What's that, what does that sound like? That sounds like a July in Alaska, a twilight thing, doesn't it? Isn't that what that sounds like? Now, hold that in your mind, and let's go to a passage of Scripture that Jesus talks about his second coming and what to be looking for. Let's go to Matthew chapter 25. Matthew chapter 25. Just go to the right, two books, and there you are. Matthew chapter 25. I did that wrong. Matthew chapter 24. There we go. Matthew 24. And give it a second there. Verse 29. Now, he's describing Matthew 24 again. Um, it has been misinterpreted to think that it's the time of the rapture. Let me give you an example of it. No, not yet. I'll, I'll come back to it. Matthew 24, one of the disciples says, How will we know when you come again? And he's describing now his second coming because they've been really, really up in the air. No, 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 you can't leave us. No, no, you can't. No, you have to stay. This, the, right? This is the kingdom. This is where it starts, right? And, and, and we got the Romans, and can you, you, you know, they were up in the air. And he said, No, 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 listen carefully. I must leave for you to get the comforter who literally will live within you. Another great promise. If you're here today and you've trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, the Holy Spirit indwells you. He is the seal unto the day of redemption, it says in Ephesians chapter 4. Isn't that amazing? Literally, the Holy Spirit lives within you. And how does the Holy Spirit function in rock and roll? Through the Word of God, through the truth. He reveals that to you. That's why a Christian has a much... I mean, they have, they have an insight that's amazing. You look, if you look through the world of the lens right now today, and you don't have Christ... It is not only blurred, you get the wrong message every single second of every single time. But when you have trusted Christ and the Holy Spirit lives within you, when you respond to truth, first of all, it resonates. When truth is said, guess what happens in your spirit? That's the truth. You know what I'm talking about if you're a Christian. And you start to go see the lens of, of where we're at today through the power of the Word of God and the Holy Spirit guiding and directing that. It's amazing. Sometimes frightening in the sense of nobody else gets it. I'm saying the world. And to see the rampantness of evil. And why don't people see this? Have you ever said that? Why can't they see that? Because the pulls of Satan in society are so amazingly strong in the world. It is amazing how strong it is. Never probably been any stronger than it is today. But to think of that, the Holy Spirit is right there working ourselves through that. Now, let's go to Matthew chapter 24. He's describing for them the signs of his coming. Now, verse 29, when we're, we're popping right in, there's some other things he starts. These are four signs. These are signals. But watch verse 29. Keeping in mind now, Zechariah chapter 14. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, this would be the end of the tribulation period, shall the sun be darkened and the moon shall not give her light. And the stars shall fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens shall be shaken. And then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven, and then shall all the tribes of the earth mourn, and they shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he shall send his angels with great sound of trumpet. They shall gather together his elect from the four winds and from one end of heaven to the other. He has just described the exact same event that was pictured for us in Zechariah chapter 14. It's like a twilight. And the sun, in a sense of its brilliance, goes down. The moon is not there, and yet it's still you can see. Do you see? It's not day, it's not night. That's twilight. And literally, what is that going to fashion? As you see Jesus Christ, and you know where you're at? If you're, if you're trusted Christ, 
you're coming with him. You're the army that comes with him. <laughs> right? Isn't that great? This was a vision when? You don't think God's big? Whoa. And here they come. All eyes will see Jesus Christ riding on a white horse. And I'm going to tell you, it said the tribes of, that all of the tribes of the nations are fearing. You better believe it. They've been gathered for this final battle. They're going to take out the Jews, take out Jerusalem. They're going to finish it once and for all. And the Antichrist is leading this literally from among these ten kings. This time frame is exactly when it's going to happen. On that day, literally. Did you see how descriptive now the script, how it fits together? Daniel and Zechariah and Matthew, it all just like a glove. Well, let's keep going. Let's go to chapter 25. And let's find out who is judged. How does this kingdom take place? Because obviously there's going to be a battle. And you know if there's one kingdom or the other is the Nebuchadnezzar. No, they were not Nebuchadnezzarans. <laughs> they were Babylonians, right? Sorry. As Nebuchadnezzar would have went from one to the next, what, guess what? Belshazzar, we'll find him in chapter 4 of Daniel, he was a loser. And then the Medes and Persians literally take him out. So when this fifth kingdom comes, which comes from a stone that is not made with hands, there's some things that are going to happen. Not the least of which is going to be, he's going to deal with the Jews. In fact, are you still back in Zechariah? You're in Matthew. Let's just stay there in Matthew for a moment. Let's, let's look at, at when the kingdom hits and Jesus Christ begins this, what happens and who's involved. Matthew, let's go to verse 25, uh, chapter 25. Let's start in verse 31. He's working with the Gentiles. This is the judgment of the Gentiles. Verse 31 of chapter 25. How's your head? Are you guys able to keep going? Doing okay? There's a lot of stuff going on here. Uh, verse 31. When the Son of Man shall come in His glory. We just spoke of that in, verse, in chapter 24. All the holy angels with Him, then shall He sit upon the throne of His glory. And before Him shall be gathered all nations. And He shall separate them one from another, as a shepherd divideth his sheep from the goats. And He shall set the sheep on His right hand and the goats on the left. Now, first of all, our, our, our minds are going this way. He talked of nations, and he talked about separation. It's not like, let's see, Poland. What am I going to do with those? Oh, they're kind of a keeper. Let's put those here on the right side. Um, let's see, Egypt. Uh, let's go left. Those are no, no, I'm not talking about that. What makes up nations? And actually, the word is ethnos, which would be an ethnicity or an individual people. God always is interested in individuals. doesn't matter where you were born. really doesn't matter what family you were born into. It doesn't matter what country you were born to. It's always about you as an individual. This is exactly what we're talking about now. So he's going to be judging. You can tell. Now, this, isn't, this is not the great white throne judgment. This is literally to go into the kingdom. Well, now, what's the kingdom called as we go forward? The one that's never going to end. The millennium. Now, this is interesting because there's, this would be a pre-millennial coming. Second coming, pre, in other words, before the thousand-year reign, okay? That's literally what I believe the Scripture has just taught us in Daniel chapter 2. Now, there's those that are amillennials, those that believe there is no millennial. Millennium, I'm sorry. In other words, a meaning no, no millennial. The point of the problem with that is, is literally, did you see this? This kingdom started immediately. It was abrupt, it was sudden, and it lasted, and it was physical. Don't miss that. It's not a spiritual kingdom. It is literally a forever political, realistic, onboard, full physical kingdom. Okay? And it happens, boom. Now, um, without going too far down this trail, all millennials have felt that 
at 70 AD, when the Romans destroyed all of Jerusalem, that literally at that point in time, we began to get better and better and better and better and better. Is that enough better? We're not very better today is what I'm coming up with. The better part is not better for me. I can't see it. Now, the other part of that, see, that's totally erroneous in how Daniel chapter 2 is described for us. Did you see it? The stone came out and came rolling down and destroyed it with suddenness, and it smote it completely. It is the end. There is no other kingdom. That doesn't fit anything, is it? Or a post-millennialist is one that says that Christ comes after the millennium. No, that doesn't fit the narrative either. So now let's go back and let's start putting this into place. So we've described that these are individuals. Let's watch how they're judged. And first, we want to make sure we get through this because this is something that's very, very important theologically. Verse 34. Then shall the king... Did you see now? Here's King Jesus. He's the king now. He came at the first time. He was the lamb of God, right? Remember, he was the sacrificial lamb. The second coming, did you get it? He's the king. He's the king. He says unto, them on the, says unto them on the right hand, Come you, blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And then he says this, For I was hungry, and you gave me meat. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in. Naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, you visited me. I was in prison, and you came unto me. Then shall the righteous answer and say, Lord... When, when did we see you hungry and fed you, or thirsty and gave you drink? When did we see you a stranger and took you in, or naked and clothed you? Or when we saw you sick or in prison, came unto you? Now watch verse 40. The king shall answer and say unto them, Verily or truly I say unto you, Inasmuch as you have done it unto one of the least of these my brethren, you have done it unto me. Now, now what you're thinking is, wait a minute, Larry. Didn't, didn't you just talk about that? This, doesn't that sound like a works program? Doesn't that sound like you went to the Salvation Army? Or you went to the... Uh, the homeless center, and you, I mean, how many times do I got to do that to get there? That's not what it's about at all. It's not ever, it's never been about works. Even in James, a faith without works is dead. It's not the focus on works. It's the focus on faith because the works come from a faith. It's the same idea here, but let's think now. What time frame is this in? This is in the tribulation dispensation of which... God is working what? With Jews, particularly. This is seven years of hell on earth. And the last three and a half years, I can't describe it for you adequately. As you go through Revelation, I've taught through it several times, it is so over the top, so outrageously difficult, it's hard to even describe. They are at the end of that. And now the master, the king has just said, you took care, you, when I was naked, you clothed me, when you fed, you fed me. And they're like, We didn't see you, but he said, if you did it to one of the least of these, you did it to me. Let's think about that for a second. And while you're thinking, let's go back to Revelation. Let's find a group of people, particularly that's mentioned, that these people would have been in a great deal of harm's way by taking care of them. Let's go to Revelation chapter 7. Chapter 7. And it describes for us this group of people. These would be Jews. And I'll just take eight verses. We'll just read it. Verse 
1, chapter 7. After these things, I saw four angels standing on the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth, that the wind should not blow on the earth, nor on the sea, nor on any tree. I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God, and he cried with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was given to hurt the earth and the sea, saying, Hurt not the earth, neither the sea nor the trees, till we have sealed the servants of our God in their foreheads. And I heard the number of them which were sealed, and there were sealed a hundred and forty-four thousand of all the tribes of the children of Israel. Of the tribe of Judah were sealed twelve thousand. Of the tribe of Reuben were sealed twelve thousand. Of the tribe of Gad were sealed twelve thousand. Of the tribe of Asher were sealed twelve thousand. Of the tribe of Naphtalim were sealed twelve thousand. Of the tribe of Manasseh were sealed twelve thousand. Of the tribe of Simeon were sealed twelve thousand. Of the tribe of Levi were sealed twelve thousand. Of the tribe of Issachar were sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Zebulun were sealed. Go ahead and say 12,000. Yeah. It was starting to be repetitive, wasn't it? Of the tribe of Joseph were sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Benjamin were sealed 12,000. If you add those all together, you've got 144,000. Now watch verse 9. This is an amazing verse. After this I beheld, and lo, a great multitude, which no man could number, of all nations and kindreds of people and tongues stood before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes and palms in their hands, and cried in a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God, which sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb. And I'll go through the rest of that chapter and it'll describe that massive number of people that have come to know Jesus Christ as Savior, that have trusted God in the tribulation period, no less. And it's because of those 144,000 evangelists that came from each one of the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, I want to, and you say, what does this have to do with you as you're saying Matthew 25? Listen carefully. What would it tell about those that were saved? What do we know about those? They couldn't have the mark of the beast. Now, if you don't have the mark of the beast, what doesn't work out for you? You don't get to buy. You don't get to sell. You don't go to the grocery store. You don't go get health. You don't get anything. It is a total isolated life. Now are you starting to see what Jesus was talking about as he described these that are going to the right, to be the righteous, as he describes them as being righteous? Not because of their works. It was because of their faith that was in him that they responded to potentially the 100, let's say the 144,000. Do you think they just stayed in the group? You're kidding me. Think of all of the communication potential we have, but there probably would, probably, probably, one of those guys would come to Sheridan, Montana. Who's going to house that guy? What if the Antichrist, and by the way, you're tracked. Probably better not have your cell phone anymore. That's too easy to get a hold of. All of you see what I'm saying? How much would have it taken for that person or persons to go ahead and say, well, you know, I care enough about you. You've, you've had a long day. I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to feed you. I'm going to take care of you. You can stay in my house. What penalty would come with that? Death. <laughs> At best. That is exactly what we're talking about in, in Matthew chapter 25. We're talking about those men and women that trusted Christ, that proved it by literally taking care of those. Was it the 144,000? It could be any Jew because that's how hated they will come under the Antichrist. That would, in other words, that's like walking the walk, talking the, not just talking the talk, but walking the walk. I mean, how many would line up for that? Let's say that, let's just say one of the 144,000 was in this building and spoke the message of truth and the message of God and all of those things that when you accept him. Um, and I, God, I'm not going to be here. <laughs> okay. 
This, I'm, that was not a joke. I'm not going to be here because God promised I'm out of here. But if there was someone that found Christ through the witness of this person, said, okay, guys, hold it now. Who's going to take care of Jeremiah? We're going to call him Jeremiah, the evangelist. He's from the tribe of Judah. Who's going to take him tonight? Right? They won't even be able to get out of there fast enough, right? But the ones that do are literally the ones at the beginning of the fifth kingdom when Jesus says, now I want to talk to each one of you. And when you took care of Jeremiah, that evangelist that spoke and shared him on, and I'm just making it up. Here's this going to sound weird, but I like things to be personally realistic. You made a difference. You took care of me just like you did that person. Go ahead and come over here on the right. Now, those that had taken the mark of the beast, now the armies are wiped out immediately. We'll go to, we can go to chapter 18 and 19 of Revelation. As all of those nations are gathered to fight in Jerusalem to wipe out the Jews, and here comes Jesus in this twilight, which we've just seen, and he lands on earth on the Mount of Olives and, and, and on Zion, and it's over before it starts. But then there's all the other people, those that were just people. And you know how you got to go to the left? was you didn't take care of those. In fact, let's, let's go back to our scripture, chapter 25. Chapter 25 of Matthew. Hold your place in Revelation, we'll be back. But let's watch now on the left. He says in verse 41 of chapter 25 of Matthew, Then shall he say unto them on the left hand, Depart from me, you cursed, into everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels, going to a place that wasn't even prepared for you. For I was hungry, and you gave me no meat. I was thirsty, you gave me no drink. I was stranger, and you took me not in. Naked, you clothed me not. Sick and in prison, you visited me not. Then shall they also answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and athirst, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, and in prison, did not minister unto you? And then shall he answer them, Verily I say unto you, and as much as you did it not to one of the least of these, you did it not to me. See, it's the same deal. Their faith reveals of whose they really were. Now, all of those that would receive the mark of the beast. Now, again, I, we can see images or shadows of that today. You can, th- you can see it through vaccination protocols. You can start to see this whole thing start to unfold in the sense of control and where it's going to go. And whose are you? Where is your hope? Whose really are you? That's what happens at the end of the tribulation period, is you have, you have shown to the master the beginning of the fifth kingdom whose you really were. Wow, is this not amazing to watch this whole... Now, we're using, we're using Daniel, we're using Matthew, we're using Revelation, we're using Zechariah. This whole thing is unfolding. Now, we don't have time today, but not only is this taking place among the Gentiles, but there's also a time of the Jews, of their time of judgment. Now, in the verses 1 through... In, in uh, um, Matthew chapter 25, it talks about the ten virgins. That's a, that's a very good analogy of the Jews that will be will be judged according to how they've responded to the Savior. But I want to go back to Zechariah. I'm going to leave you with this in regards to the Jews. Let's go back to Zechariah. Again, what is it? Two books left of Matthew. And let's find in chapter 12. We'll start there. This is literally what happens to the Jews at the end of the tribulation period. This is the moment that Jesus Christ and God the Father have been waiting for to happen in the chosen people's lives. Let's start in verse uh, Zechariah chapter 12. Let's find that first of all. Zechariah chapter 12. We'll start in verse 9. 
It shall come to pass in that day that I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. You see it? Okay, we're right in the same time frame. It's all fitting together. Verse 10, And I will pour upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplications, and they shall look upon me whom they have pierced. This is the Jews. Who the, wait a minute. They're going to look on Jesus. That's the one thing. Someone says that they're Messiah. You know the first thing you ask them for? Let me see your marks. If, they ain't wearing, if they're not wearing the nail prints, they ain't my Jesus. Someone wants to be a Messiah? You, start getting, you get the real stuff, right? Okay, now this is, look at what they say. He says, that, like, looked upon whom he is pierced, verse 10, and they shall mourn for him as one mourneth for his only son and shall be in bitterness for him as one that is in bitterness for his firstborn. In that day shall there be a great mourning in Jerusalem as the mourning of Hadadrim, Hadadrim in the valley of Megiddo. And the land shall mourn every family apart, the family of the house of David apart, their wives apart, the family of the house of Nathan apart, and their wives apart, the family of the house of Levi apart, and their wives apart, the family of Shimei and their wives apart. All the families remain, every family apart, and their families and their wives apart. That is exactly what's going to happen. When Jesus Christ appears, they will see him finally as their coming Messiah. (laughs) They'll want him. Today, they shun him. But let's look at something that's even more amazing in the sense of prophetic. I'm going to have you just read on your own chapter 13 of Zechariah. I'm going to blow in here in verses 8 and 9 and watch this. Zechariah chapter 13, because it keeps going from chapter 12, and it says this. Verse 8, chapter 13. It shall come to pass that in all the land, saith the Lord, two-thirds therein shall be cut off and die. But the third shall be left therein, and I will bring the third part through the fire and will refine them as silver is refined and will try them as gold is tried. They shall call on my name, and I will hear them, and I will say it is my people, and they shall say, the Lord is my God. Now hold that spot. Turn to Romans chapter 11. Look at how it all ties together. And you're saying, Larry, you're about got us tied up. That's about enough now. Let's, start, let, let's go to Romans chapter 11 and watch how it fits perfectly with verses 25 and 26. Romans chapter 11. This is a passage of scripture that Paul is giving in the sense of has God set aside Israel? But it's a future salvation, which Zechariah is talking about. Verse 25 now, Romans chapter 11. For I would not, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own conceits and blindness in part is happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles become... When is the fullness of the Gentiles? The end of the tribulation. The fifth kingdom's beginning to start. Verse 26. So all Israel shall be saved. And what all Israel, all of the third, as it's described in Zechariah, all of those will be saved. That is written. There shall come out of Zion the deliverer and turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant unto them, when I shall take away their sins as concerning the gospel. They are enemies for your sakes, but as touching the election, they are beloved for the Father's sakes. For the gifts and calling of God are without repentance. That is absolutely when it all comes together. And Paul is speaking of that prophecy in Zechariah chapter 12. You guys wore out? Just look at what happens. See, if you don't start in Daniel, how could you possibly get it? Daniel chapter 2, what a magnificent, huge, basic design. You throw it on the wall and it says, whoa. <laughs> it's crazy. It's majestic, isn't it? I'm just trying to think what else I can uh, 
that all unfolded, the thing that stuck out to me was, as we're going forward, here we are. November, what is the date? 30? 29th? 29th, 2020. And boy, I'll tell you what, you don't have to pick up, I mean, you, you can go to your phone, you can go to the television, you can go to a website, you, and immediately you are just distressed, aren't you? Whether you're seeking truth, first, that's not easy to find. It's amazing how much time I have to spend to find truth now. The major media, I'm, I'm sorry to say, it's not there. There's not truth anymore. You can't find truth easily anymore. Think of that. What's gone wrong? Well, again, we're going to come back. We resisted truth for so long, we really didn't care about truth. Therefore, it's harder to find when we really need it. That's where we're at. But what are we going to do? Where do we go from here? Even as Christians, you know, where is our hope? That's what I kept coming to. Where is our hope? Let's look at some verses that hopefully will give us just a sense of encouragement, if you will. We're going to hold, are you still in Romans? Hold that one. We're going to save that one for last. But let's go to the Psalms for a moment. A time of crisis. And, you know, uh, David, he had plenty of crises in his life. How would you like to have your, how would you like to have your father-in-law chasing around the javelin and trying to kill you with an army? <laughs> that's, 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 my, that's my father-in-law. Love him too, right? And yet, you know what was really cool? There's David. Where was his hope? Where was his hope? Think of that time. That, think of that hope. They're, they're hiding in the cave. And here comes Saul inside the cave. And his buddy says, David, David, this is your chance. Take him out. And David goes over and cuts off a piece of his robe. And, comes, and he feels guilty about it. Why did he feel guilty about it? That's exactly right. That's exactly right. He was leading the charge from ahead rather than behind God. Just like Moses. Remember Moses? He had the right idea. He just did it his time and not in God's time. Just think of how cool David was. He came back and, and you can imagine Saul leaves the cave and, and then David says, Oh, Saul, daddy-in-law, my favorite one. Today, God gave me into your hands but I could not because you are God's anointed one. Now, if that shouldn't have broke Paul, Saul's heart, and it did for just a short, brief time. But that man, David, I want to know what's in his heart because that is not common to not take vengeance when it's available. He was a man after God's own heart. He made lots of mistakes, but when you cut it all through, he's the only one in Scripture that it said... He was a man after God's own heart. And do you know why? Let's start looking. Let's go to Psalm chapter, and there may be, very, there may be more reasons than we're going to find, but let's start in Psalm chapter 33. And this, isn't, this is a, an anonymous psalm, but just pop into verses 20 through 22. This is how he ends this psalm, this anonymous psalm writer. Our soul waiteth for the Lord. He is our help and our hope. Now, when you're waiting for the Lord, where is your hope? In the Lord, right? I mean, that's the only way you can wait. I mean, how many of you enjoy waiting? You know, you go to a doctor's office, they call it the waiting room. That's, that just sets you up for failure, right? And in waiting in life, that's a tough thing. But literally, this is the deal. If you're waiting patiently, your hope is in the Lord. Let's keep going. Let's read the rest of those verses. 
He is our help and our shield. For our heart shall rejoice in him because we have trusted in his holy name. Let thy mercy, O Lord, be upon us according as, watch, we hope in thee. Let's look at two more. Turn over to chapter 38. Chapter 38 of Psalm and verse 15. This is a Psalm of David. For in thee, O Lord, verse 15, chapter 38, for in thee, O Lord, do I hope thou wilt hear, O Lord, my God. Chapter 39, verse 7. And now, Lord, what wait I for? My hope is in thee. That's where we need to be today. There isn't anything that this world can throw at us. There's nothing that Satan can build up. There's nothing that his demons can throw at us that literally that we aren't safe when our hope is in the Lord. Let's end with uh, uh, Romans chapter 11. And this would be, if you will, sort of a doxology that Paul lays out in regards to chapter 11 of Romans. Speaking of the Israelites, are they going to be okay? Are they going to be rejected? He's, what he's reflecting on now is literally God's wisdom. That's really where we need to be today, is on November 29th, 2020, I'm okay because my hope is in God, because his wisdom is far exceeding anything that we can comprehend. Here we go. Verse 33, chapter 11 of Romans. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. And his ways past finding out. For who hath known the mind of the Lord? Or who hath been his counselor? Or who hath first given to him? And it shall be recompensed unto him again. For of him and through him and to him are all things. To whom be glory forever. Amen. Let's pray. Father God. Thank you for the day. Thank you for the word of God. Thank you for just allowing us to see your revelation unfold and fit together beautifully. Thank you, Father, for the love that you not only told us about, but you showed us through your son, Jesus Christ, who literally, as we've focused on today, will be that rock, that stone that was a stumbling stone. It was a smitten stone, but it was also a cornerstone as described for us in many places in the New Testament as well as the Old a cornerstone, one that everything was built upon. Father, that one, that Jesus of Rockway and Zion, as he hits the earth with his feet at the second coming and all the tribes and nations will see him and they will tremble in the twilight of that day to see that the king has arrived. The king is ruling and reigning physically in reality. And his kingdom will never end. Never end. May glory go to you, Father, for your grand design. As all of the powers of sin and darkness and Satan and his demonic sidekicks literally will fall once and for all because of the work that you did. And the fact that you are fully and completely alone, a sovereign, awesome God. You have no opposite. You have no antonym. You alone are worthy of our praise. Father, to you we offer that praise up. 
You alone are worthy of everything that we can give to you. Father, I pray for our country, our nation, for our world. It is beset by much evil, much injustice, much suffering. Father, I lift it up to you, asking you to continue to help us to have hope in you, regardless of circumstances or consequences. Because there's nowhere else that we could rather be than humbly, humbly at your feet. Thank you for David, a man after your own heart. A man who proved from time after time after time that his hope was in you. Now, Father, as we journey through this coming week, there are places we will go that we may not even know today. For we do not know the future. We do not know what will happen tomorrow. And, Father, we don't even know how long we'll be on this earth But one thing we want, Father, is we want as much grace as we need to be fully and completely relationally close to yourself. For many others need to know of Jesus Christ, that our life story can tell. And may the words speak from the word. For faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. Thank you so much. We trust in you. We lift your name up on high. And these things we ask in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, the Supreme. Amen.